There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Teams. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about teams, and there has been a long history of teams in business. And all of us, I'm sure you as well, know the power of a great team to innovate or the power of a team to solve a cross-functional problem. But for every success that I've seen, I've seen way too many cases where the team effort was ineffective. People would say there are too many meetings, there are too many competing agendas, and ultimately too little success. Now, in my practice at the moment, I'm seeing a resurgence in investing in building and stronger teams. And I think that's because leaders are now seeking any edge they can get to enhance performance. And teams seem to be, stronger teams seem to be part of that solution. And I think that's all a good thing. However, it will only be good if we do a better job of building teams, repairing them, and sustaining the teamwork. So the question for today is really, how do we use teams effectively? How do we organize them for success, especially given the gig economy and agile working? And how do we do the hard stuff like building trust and cohesion? And finally, if you're the lead of a team, what does it mean you're supposed to do to get the maximum gain? Now, we have a real treat today. My guest is Dave Winsboro. Dave is founder of Winsboro Limited, New Zealand's largest organizational psychology consultancy, and he's also the founder of Deeper Signals, which is a New York-based startup. He was recently director of innovation at Hogan Assessment Systems, um, which is one of the world's trusted, most trusted psychometric assessment firms, and one of my favorites. Those of you who've listened to me in the past know I kind of tout Hogan pretty strongly. More importantly, though, Dave is an expert on teams, and he's coached over 25 senior leadership teams in some of New Zealand's most iconic organizations. He's also advised the New Zealand Defense Force for many years on leadership, and he's developed the leadership framework that is the basis of all their um, development training, leadership development training in the Defense Forces in New Zealand. The author of over 30 scientific articles and book chapters, and he's just recently completed his second book called Fusion, the Psychology of Teams. I think we're in for a great conversation. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's awesome to be here. Nice to be talking to you in America from New Zealand. Yes, and greatly appreciated because the time difference is quite dramatic here, but we're looking forward to it. I'm excited about this because I'm a big fan of your book, Fusion. But let's start, I want to talk about your experience with how you see organizations using and structuring teams. What are we doing that's right, and what are we missing? Well, I just want to echo what you said, which is I think we are seeing a resurgence of um, the use of teams in all sorts of environments. I'm particularly interested in the emergence of teams at the top of organizations. And I think that um, teams haven't really gone away. But I think I think the uh, from the, the tech world particularly, we're seeing a bleed of the use of um, of teams and and new methodologies that uh, that help teams be effective into the wider the wider corporate scene, um, and you know 
as you said, I think I think partly that's because people are interested in um, uh, you know greater productivity, but I think it's a consequence as well of um, some shifts both in in expectation and attitude. Uh, and I think also it's driven a bit by cost cutting as layers of management have come out and organizations are looking to be a bit more uh, nimble and agile in the way they go about delivering their services and products. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the top team, but let's stay with this tech world theme for just a minute. What kind of methodologies are you seeing people use that are particularly effective? Um, well, I, I can't imagine there's many people that haven't heard of things like Agile methodologies, or yeah. uh, or tools and techniques like Scrum. Um, so, so I mean, those are the ones that people will identify most um, most easily with. Uh, and these are tools really that that just enable uh, coordination and um, and help teams move from task to task smoothly and easily, and guide guide the team and help the leader delegate, uh, delegate tasks. So, uh, so, you know, for the most part, these are, these are kind of technological, uh, yeah. technological tools. They don't, they, you know, they don't require technology to run. Anyone can run a scrum board. But the, um, as they begin to turn up in, in other organizations uh, outside of, of the tech world, uh, they and they and they begin to pick up speed. Then so they become technologically enabled. So we see tools like Trello, for example, uh, which is which is free for the most part. You can you can pay it, but it's a um, an electronic scrum board or coordination tools um, such as Slack or Rike or some of these uh, some of these kinds of things turn up. Right. I'm seeing, I know a lot of my clients have those tools available, but they don't tend to use them in, in what I find is particularly effective ways. So, yes, I can send a Slack message back and forth really quick. You know, yes, we have some ways of coordinating, but it doesn't seem like it really organizes the work or it keeps people connected in the ways that make a difference. Uh, and I know the technology world is different for that one, but what are you seeing in traditional teams in organizations? Uh, well, I think you know there's a. Um, uh, there, I, I think that's down to um, managerial competence, really. You know, how good is the leader at, uh, at, 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 you know, integrating and using some of these things? If, if an organisation simply jumps on the bandwagon, which we, yeah. we all know they're prone to do, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm going to say in the HR world especially, but. You know, it's as fickle as the fashion industry in terms of getting excited by by a brand or a, um, or a, a kind of um, you know a label, and and it jumps on board without necessarily thinking about the um, the nature of the work. And I think I think you know there's a design philosophy that that we drum into or use strongly in our in our kind of leadership training and. Uh, and teamwork, which is form follows function. So you must be clear about the nature of the work and just applying a methodology uh, without considering whether or not it fits the context and environment um, is, is just plain dumb. So you know, we were talking about, say, the use of Scrum, which fits 
a model for rapid software development. Right. Uh, and and applying that in in say a call center probably has little benefit. So I think you know you have to think about the nature of the work that's being done. And you know, as I said, too frequently, you know, these things are just applied mindlessly. Right, right. Uh, uh, so know, give I'm me. Sure, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, I was just going to say. So you, you said you, you know, you'd seen companies apply these things, but to little effect. I'm I'm curious about that as well. Yeah. So what what's your experience been? I think there's a whole host of dynamics that have to get sorted out between for a team to be really effective. And I'm going to concentrate on the interpersonal dynamics because that's where my specialty lies and where my passion lies. And if we don't get those dynamics working smoothly and then finding ways of staying connected at a human level with each other, that's efficient. A whole bunch of other stuff goes wrong. And I would also agree with you that it's not just a technology for the sake of a technology. It's the technology in the service of a particular function that we need it to do. And I don't pe- don't think people stop and say, what does this team need from a functional point of view? And therefore, what technology or methodology do we apply to make that work? That's what I see. So I, I follow your notion that the form follows the function. So give me an example outside of technology where you see teams adopting a particular working strategy that makes them effective? And I don't care if it's tech-enabled or not tech-enabled. Well, I'll give you an example from the the world of leadership, which is the one that I'm probably most familiar with. Um, You know, an an organization that I've worked with for uh, many years is a... um, uh, does, does genetics for... Uh, for livestock animals, and particularly in the dairy industry, um, and uh, for New Zealand, which is which is a strongly agricultural country, you know our economy depends yep. on agriculture. Genetics matters enormously. So, you know, this is a scientific organisation which produces, um, uh, you know, different breeds and strains of animals, uh, carefully selected and carefully bred. So, their their work. Um, takes generations to come to fruition. So one of the the shifts that the leadership team made was to try and become a whole lot more deliberate about what they were doing. And rather than be reactive, they began to try and shift the focus of the organization from, you know, whatever we're doing right now in terms of genetics to thinking much longer term in order to do that, they had to shift resources. They had to uh, they they had to change the way in which they thought about the company, um, and and in order to do that, they shifted to um, their own work uh, to a, a more structured and rigorous, rather than uh, you know uh, centered around a series of meetings. They began to operate much more in terms of. Uh, cycles and time frames. Um, now, it's not quite analogous to software development, but they began to think uh, generationally and and take that approach in terms of the way that they ran uh, ran their organisation. So, so the net of that was they began to run. Um, you know, they ran meetings which were focused on short term. How are we doing? You know, what's happening this quarter? Uh, but but would spend time thinking and planning uh, the organization for the organization 
in medium and long term cycles as well. Um, and and they, you know, the the consequence of that shift, which frankly requires an enormous amount of discipline, just stick to that. You know, the call of the business and the call of the transaction sucks teams, sucks leadership teams down into uh, into the business. Uh, really began to uh, really began to change um, how they began to think about the business. So, uh, you know, adopting adopting a different mindset and translating that into different actions on the ground uh, in terms of how they organise themselves really produced a um, a shift for the organisation. So, the net of that over about five years, I think their revenue has gone up by about half, which is spectacular for a uh, you know, for a little, uh, you know, a small company like that. Well, five years and it's gone up by half. That's fabulous. I get the sense, though, that with this team, it's about being much more intentional on what we're trying to do and having articulated intentionally what we need to be doing as a leadership team and then translating that into the way they meet and the way they interact and the questions they ask and how they spend their time. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's um, shift gears for a minute uh, Dave, because what's happening in every client I'm talking to is this big word called collaboration and the belief that yeah. if we get teams that are more collaborative, then everything will be great. I even have clients who are trying to screen hires for collaboration as a number one criteria uh, just to make sure that we've got people who are have a collaborative mindset. Now, I think that's a lovely thing because there are a lot of good things that come out of collaboration. I don't think it's the only thing you need in an organization, but I find so few people understand how to go from the culture they have today to a collaborative culture. And I gave you my pet peeve example on this one. We want a collaborative culture, but we still keep a performance system that is based on individuals Uh achieving particular objectives. That kills collaboration in every way. So what are you seeing and what are you finding really helps develop a true collaborative spirit in teams? Uh, So so look, just, you know, if we we just back up a second, one of the, you know, I mentioned before that I think, um, you know, organizations suffer from fads and uh, and the, the idea that a particular you know, it's going to be, you know, years ago it would have been, um, you know, the re-engineering fad or it would have been okay. uh, the notion of, um, you know, you can just insert something from um, the Harvard Business Review or the McKinsey Quarterly or something uh, at this point. But the, the organizations do that in response to, uh, to you know, what they, they see is happening in the market and, and, and what's happening in their organizations. And... You know the underlying drive for increased collaboration, I think, is driven by a sense that organisations can become disjoint, that uh, that they they you know they can't join up across the various functions or uh, or parts of the organisation don't mesh easily or effectively, and uh, and and we're seeing so you know we've come to collaboration but we're seeing organizations begin to try and change the basic forms and structures to to uh, to embed the notion of coordinated action across mm-hmm. the firm so mm-hmm. so things like holacracy or uh or or some of the more experimental organization forms are designed to to make the organization more responsive and adaptive and flexible. So, you know, 
in effect, I think sometimes interventions like, oh, we want to be more collaborative or we want to drive that, um, are a response, a symptom, you know, trying to fix a symptom uh, about the organisation without necessarily understanding, well, what are the drivers? Now, that's, that's not to say that collaboration is a bad thing uh, because clearly it's not. What, what we want is coordinated action across all human beings, but, but teaching collaboration or just <clears throat> requiring it by fiat I don't think it's a very sensible, sensible way to go. You know, it goes back to what we were saying about form follows function. You know, why do we need it? How is it going to be driven? And, and certainly you have to pay attention to things like um, the kinds of people that you bring on. So you alluded to, you know, you talked about uh, incentive systems and, and performance and pay systems that are profoundly individual. Um, equally, you know, we look at selection. So any hypo uh, program is designed pretty much to identify people who are going to be good individual achievers. And as those people you know, rise in the organization, they, um, they are rewarded for, uh, for their own achievement and not necessarily for collaboration. So, so just saying we, we want to select more collaborative people without thinking about the incentive structures or how the organization um, is designed for collaboration is, is just an exercise in futility. I mean, I completely get the urge uh, to do it, but um, you know, you know, you really have to think about how the organisation is engineered. You know, I think I think sometimes we, you know, what actually happens is that we say team or we say collaboration, but the organisation is actually engineered for exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because, because it suits it suits senior management and it suits the kinds of people that run organisations. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about, um, so some of my clients, without naming any names, are based on a partnership structure. <laughs> and in a partnership okay. structure, I get reach partnership because of the quality of my independent work and my ability to bring business in from my clients. Notice the focus on the individual. The coordinated activity might be the handful of people that work with me who are more junior to me and are more dependent upon me. But then when you say we want to start collaborating across partners, there's no experience to make that even understand why or where or how. Because everything has been driven up until that moment in time from a very individualistic prove-yourself point of view. So, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things which I think is kind of interesting, when you look, uh, when you look across the world, in, in any organization, as organizations, you know, as Organizations get larger, collaboration just gets harder, uh, and and you know we might look in in organizations which are sorry in countries that are less individualistic uh, in their in their outlook, um, but the organizations still end up behaving in this way. So I think that it is it is something about the law of large numbers and human beings uh, that 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 it's very hard to get rid of hierarchy from human nature and, uh, and the kinds of people that go up hierarchies want to take control and, uh, want, and you know, uh, are, are disinclined to collaborate. It's, it's rare to see that uh, at senior levels in organizations. So, 
So, you know, to some extent, I, I think it's grounded in human nature as well. Although, uh, you know, at base we are collaborative. When we get together in large numbers, um, the, the, the sorts of people that rise to the top and take charge tend not to be terribly collaborative. So what do we do to fix this? If the desire is to have a genuinely more collaborative, what's the solution? Uh, uh, in, in 25 words or less, right? Uh, yeah, right. Well, no, you can take 50. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, there's, there's just not one solution. I think that, uh, I think that um, breaking, down, breaking down work into, uh, into deliverables, and um, and kind of structures that enable people to work cooperatively uh, with it, with a high degree of autonomy is going to suit some organisations, and it's just not going to suit others. So, you know, for some organisations, I just think you know they're, they're sort of they're just they're pushing things uphill to try and enforce something which is going to be really hard. Uh, Maybe an an example from the military might serve. So in some parts of the military, uh, we want want teams who uh, collaborate closely but remain autonomous. So particularly in special forces teams um, where the, the conditions on the ground are highly uncertain, we expect them to act with autonomy and respond to situations really quickly. Um, you know, one of the one of the defining features of those sorts of organisations is a lack of hierarchy, uh, and um, and small, uh, as I said, small semi-autonomous teams who have a lot of responsibility. So they have a lot of freedom of action. Uh, in organisations or in other parts of the military, where it just doesn't suit or it wouldn't be useful to have people going off and doing things. You know, you kind of want lots of repetitive. Um, like in a logistics organisation, um, it, it doesn't make as much sense to have highly autonomous teams. It's probably better to work as a bureaucracy. So, so you know, I, I can't stress enough this idea that think about the nature of the work and how it's done before you go. Let's get a team. If you if you have you know so so right now you know the the thing that's most exciting in the world is the notion of a startup and particularly a tech startup and you know, um, uh, th- th- these sorts of organisations where they are very fast, there are no rules for what they're doing, you know, they're trying to operate quickly, to be flexible, people multitask, you know, they take on lots of different roles. Uh, it, you know, it, it suits to uh, to have these small autonomous teams. But even the likes of Google, I mean, not that I know a whole lot about Google or Apple, I can't imagine they're not actually probably as bureaucratic as, um, as uh, you know, a stuffy old government agency is now in, in many respects. I know, you know, they, they, um, they just require systems and processes to work. And when those things come in, then that begins to work against the notion of, this, um, of the teamwork that we're talking about. So I would say, you know, so what's the solution? I think you really have to think about the work. I really have to think that you are probably going to sacrifice, if you want teamwork, you're going to sacrifice some some control as a leader. You've got to hand off and let people get on and solve problems inside that, that team unit. And that's hard for some people and some organizations freak out. And then you get, you know, there's all sorts of regulations. So in a banking environment, for example, um, 
it, again, it's going to work against teamwork because you've got all these other checks and balances and um, systems and processes that, that make it hard to work in that, in that way. That makes, so what you said makes a lot of sense to me, and I see now how you come with this notion that form follows function. So if you think about, um, you were talking about Google, but I can do this in terms of any number of organizations where there are large parts of the organization that are doing a fairly systematized kind of work. It's a bit, I don't want to say routine or boring, but we know what the solution is. We know what the answers are for the most part. We know what the process is. It's well documented. It's well regimented regimented and those operations those functions i've always said operate best by a benevolent command and control system so bureaucratic we know what to do how to do it where to do it where to do it and it's keeping everybody coordinated that takes a completely different kind of teamwork than when we are trying to invent something that hasn't been invented before whether that's a tech yeah. startup or an innovation process or addressing an unknown client need in an unknown way um, where we've got to have different kind of autonomy and a different kind of team interaction. And there you see the need for control and regulatory and risk environment kind of managed coming up against what is we know is going to be effective for an innovative team. Makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and your notion of... Um, you know, a benevolent, a benevolent kind of uh, control model is really appropriate. Um, and in that environment, you know, what what begins to matter more? So, if if the the, the task is really clear and uh, and you know it's repetitive, you know, we're working in a call centre. You know, what matters is is leaders who who can show uh, you know individualised consideration for their employees, where. The work environment itself can be made pleasant um, and uh, and engaging uh, as much as we can for them. So you know, social conditions matter uh, matter a great deal. But but autonomy and things like that are you know probably going to be sacrificed. I, I was just trying to think of an example of where you might get a mix of these. And uh, and what came to mind was the notion of um, fire crews. So. You know, lots of systematized training, uh, and uh, and for the most part, quite command and control until until you you're at a fire. And although you know there's lots of um, still control, you expect people to coordinate brilliantly and work effectively. Um, and it brings to mind a point that uh, that just drives me crazy, is that when you look at teams like that, uh, or you look at a professional sports team. One of the defining differences between them and you know, because we use analogies like you know, we want to be like a, you know, we want to be like a top sports team, and you hear a lot in business. One of the great differences is that sports teams practice all the time, and they review what they do religiously, and they take they take the teamwork part seriously. Whereas in business, we just shove a bunch of people together and uh, and tell them to to act as a team. Uh, and and that's kind of it. We sort of expect somehow, you know, like, well, you know, like fish and water, you guys are human beings and human beings team, so go to it. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, teamwork for the most part is, uh, is you know, we just, we just miss the opportunity that exists there. 
break. Well, that's a perfect stopping point. So we're going to stop, take a break. Um, with me today is Dave Winsboro. Dave's book, if you're interested, is called The Fusion, The Psychology of Teams. And Dave is in New Zealand, the founder of Winsboro Limited, and has done a ton of consulting around the world, but particularly with a lot of New Zealand's large iconic organizations. And as you've just been hearing from the Defense Forces in New Zealand as well. I think the thing that strikes me in this entire segment is to be more thoughtful about the form following the function. To start with looking at what am I trying to accomplish with this group of people and what's the appropriate form for the function within that group. And then I think, Dave, exactly as you said, this last part is we just expect it to happen, teamwork, without really putting any energy into it. So that's what we'll talk about when we come back from a break. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Dave Winsboro. Dave is in New Zealand, founder of Winsboro Limited, which is one of New Zealand's largest 
organizational psychology consultancies. He's done a ton of work with senior leadership teams as well as with the New Zealand Defense Force. Now, just as we were taking a break, we were talking about this notion that the form, the technology, the methodology, the structure, the decision-making form follows the function and that you can't emphasize enough how important it is to get the function right. We were also talking about teams like firefighting teams or special forces teams or sports teams that spend an incredible amount of time making sure they get the team part of it right rather than in business where we just assume human beings know how to team, get on with it. So I have to pick up at that point, Dave, and let's talk about an iconic New Zealand sports team, the All Blacks rugby team, who's without (laughs) doubt adored around, well, I guess it depends upon your country. You can't help but respect them, and their winning streak is a history. So what is it that they do teaming-wise that's, you know, unique relative to business? Uh, I am I am really pleased to be talking uh, about the All Blacks, who have probably the winningest record of any sports team uh, on the planet. Uh, and for coming out of a country of only four and a half million people, um, clearly they're doing something something right. So, the, the, you know, this this thing, which which really is you know iconic in New Zealand, um, uh, in the last in the last probably you know, eight or so years has, has just stretched to another level. And um, we were talking before, you know, one of the things that differentiates many teams of business from a good sports team is, is, the, is really one word, and it's professionalism. If, if I think about some of the leadership teams that I've worked with, they regard the, the collaborative uh, elements of their work just as as a, a part of of you know how they go about doing their individual job, and for some it's even an imposition. It's, Why do I have to do this stuff? You know, adds no value. And if you compare that to um, to the professional attitude taken inside a team like the All Blacks, where where both the individuals' um, development, behaviour, attitudes are, are front and centre. And their contribution to the whole is uh, at least as important as their performance on the field. So the All Blacks take the, the team culture incredibly seriously. Uh, and they have, they have a pretty well-worked ethos about, uh, about being uh, no, no one person is bigger than the team that everyone must do their share. So, you know, there are some apocryphal stories of um, famous all-black captains required to sweep the changing sheds after, after matches, not as a punishment because it's their turn, uh, and to carry the team bags, you know, carry water on the field, uh, to, to teach them humility, really, that no one is bigger than the team. And, that, and, and the job of every person is to is to help that team work better, even to the extent of having rivals for the same position required to room together. So this has become a tradition in the last um, over the last six or eight years that that two people who are vying for the same uh, on-field role are required to cooperate and help each other be the best they can be. And and at that point, 
if you have people who are working for the good of their colleagues to help their colleagues be successful, even if it means that they may not, uh, you know, I think that, that that really is breakthrough performance. You know, that's 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 teamwork at a, an entirely different level where self-sacrifice becomes something which is um, which is desirable, uh, and. Uh, you know, it really, it really translates onto the field. You know, these guys approach it with a with a different a different attitude. They are very humble, um, which you know, which isn't to take away from how good they are and how how they professional they are in terms of skills. But they uh, they work very hard at the team culture side. That's interesting. This notion that rivals for the same position have to room together it strikes me in a hundred and eighty degree contrast. When we have people, two people, sometimes three, vying for the head of a business, either as CEO or the head of a business unit, and they're in a little bit of a competition with each other before it's announced who's going to be the, let's say, new CEO, just to think of one of my clients at the moment, and the brutality with which they treat each other is appalling. I can't imagine if those two CEO candidates had to actually live together, what would change in the culture as a result. Wow. Yeah, well, you, you know, uh, you know, the last thing we want uh, in any corporate is to have competition turned inward. Uh, I just I do not understand the mentality that says, oh, you know, competing for the same role brings out the best in everyone. I just think, I think that's misguided uh, in any, you know, if you, if you regard uh you know, I'm all for competing around the idea uh, and and looking at who has the you know the appropriate skills. But the notion that two people have to have to compete takes away uh, energy from competing in the market. And you know, heaven knows that's um, that's difficult enough. <laughs> and, and it's you know, with, without wanting to be uh, rude to your country, then the deeply divisive kind of politics that we're seeing, where competition between ideas uh, in your political system seems to me to have become very destructive, ain't good for the country. And yeah. likewise, I can't be good for a team. It can't be good for an organization. Right. right. Yes. Uh, that, uh, no comment on that one. It will be a long discussion and not very <laughs> positive one on that one. But we are certainly seeing the woes of two sides pitted against each other in the U.S. at the moment. Um, I want to come back to the All Blacks for a minute because uh, one of the things that I watch great sports teams do or even aspiring great sports teams do is they spend an awful lot of time talking to each other about what were you intending there? What were you thinking? Did you understand what I was trying to do? There's this enormous amount of candid, constructive feedback in coordination and communication. Do you see the same? Well, we certainly do. We certainly do in the All Blacks, where uh, uh, we're communicating. You know, these these without wanting to be rude. You know, rugby players join the sport not to learn communication skills, but because they love bashing their bodies into into other people. There's a joy that comes from that um, that kind of physical that physical combat, especially when you're a young man. You know, full of testosterone and adrenaline, um, and, and and one of the great transformations that you watch uh, is these people are brought into this system, uh, the All Black system, is that they grow as people and they are invested in um, to, to acquire really good communication skills. Uh, 
uh, and and to lose this notion that being vulnerable is somehow bad. So, so owning a mistake, being supported for it, and helped to uh, you know to kind of rectify it is not just your problem. It's it's um, and, and you know there have been times in, in organisations when I have seen uh, you know leadership teams get to that point, but it ain't very often. And and what you just described, this notion of people talking about, did you understand what I meant? Am I sufficiently clear? You know, can we work better together? Uh, those those are the conversations at the heart of any really great team. Great. Okay, so that's a perfect segue then. I love this. We could keep talking about it forever, that notion of growing in your own communication and in vulnerability, that willingness to admit that I didn't get it right or it wasn't as clear as I wanted or just to ask that question. So let's shift a bit and talk about the what I often call as the interpersonal dynamics or some would say the softer side, the trust and cohesion, the social structures that make teams function well. Can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So, you know, we uh, in the book I talk, uh, you know, I describe what we might call the structural hard elements of a team. So it's important to get things like goals clear, our operating processes clear, the context, you know, does the team fit the context? But in order for any human group to, to, to work effectively, um, you know, you, you've got to have good relationships inside. That does not mean the absence of conflict. Uh, and, and in actual fact, I think that, you know, really dealing effectively with conflict requires more trust than, uh, than teams that are cold and hostile and quiet or teams which have what my friend Gordy Kersey calls false harmony. Mm-hmm. Where people nod and smile, say, "Yeah, you know, it's all good," mm-hmm. and then and then just go off and do their own thing anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and the evidence is really clear that um, that trust or psychological safety, which I think is the current sexy term for for trust, um, really does make a difference. Mm-hmm. But it, but it, you know, it, I, I, I think I think you've got to be conscious about it. It, it's not good enough just to go, oh, you know, well, trust will come. I think you really have to, you've got to put it on the table and, and ask those questions. So how do you encourage teams to do that? Particularly, let's take the role of a leader. Say I'm leading a team and mm-hmm. I want to increase the trust or the psychological safety. What what do I do? Uh, well, I, well, trust is one of those weird things, which is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's got to be given before it, it can be got. So, the, the the notions, you know, I think the research around trust is, is pretty good. You know, how do you get trust? Uh, benevolence really matters. That is, I I am interested and I care about what happens to you. And and any leader needs to set an expectation that that we are interested in the success of each other. And I think that you know one of the one of the, the sort of phrases that I use when I'm when I'm coaching a leader is that your success, you will be successful when the team is successful. You know, it's changing that mindset to go, oh my God, my job is to help all these people be the best that they can be. Uh, so having, having that clear expectation. One of the other phrases that in working with a team I'll use is, you know, I start from the premise that the right people are in the room. Too frequently, I think, 
people are, especially at the top of organisations, they're a little paranoid that they're going to get fired or that mm-hmm. their performance is going to be judged, uh, which it will be and, and, you know, it should be. But I think that a benevolent, you know, a benevolent stance says it's okay to make a mistake, you know, once. It's okay twice. Three times, maybe we've got a problem, but, you know. So I think, I think the, the first point is benevolence. The second in building trust is competence. So it's really hard, you know, if you were going into brain surgery and you just met your brain surgeon and you noticed that, that you know, she had a, a tremor in her hand, you, it would raise a question. So, you know, yeah. you need to know that someone is capable and competent. I remember yeah. vividly working with um, a team, the leadership team of a, an organization uh, that doesn't exist anymore, um, the, the branch in New Zealand of the Wang Corporation, mm-hmm. and at the point that Wang went into Chapter 11, I think in the 90s, we just began working with them. Uh, and and on that team, as it began to face the task of dealing with, uh, you know, they had no products, Wang had gone uh, bankrupt, they had nothing to sell, the organisation was still going to continue, what were they going to do to, um, to keep it going? The realisation came that, um, that one of the members just wasn't wasn't up to the task. And one of the most poignant moments I've ever had was, you know, the, the point at which this person said that to the team, I don't think that I can do it. And, and the, you know, colleagues around the table said, yeah, you're right. How can we help you, you know, do the right thing and, and leave well? Um, you know, because wow. we had benevolence, we could confront the issue of competence. Uh, and wow. then the last, the last thing around trust is this idea of integrity. That you do the things that you say you will. You're going to be honest, um, and and you know, in, integrity is fundamental to, to building trust. So, any leader who wants to work on trust, competence, integrity, benevolence uh, are values that should be turned into behaviours and talked about. Yeah, I've um, one of my guests a couple of well, a couple of months ago actually used a phrase that I've been quoting all over everywhere on integrity, and he said, "100% reliable." Imagine committing a hundred percent reliable, meaning I will never say I'm going to do that by Monday morning, unless I'm 100% sure that I can indeed get it done by Monday morning. Otherwise, I'm going to say, I'm going to give it my best shot, 90% probability, but there are a couple of factors that may get in the way. Yeah. That yeah. that notion puts a whole new meaning on integrity, which I think we've gotten a little slack with. My country not necessarily helping that equation either at the moment, but 100% reliable is an, is an interesting goal. Okay, so the leader showing benevolence and the leader ensuring that we have competence on the team and the and showing integrity and then presumably the team follows or you know what do you do to make sure the team is on board with you on all three of those skills uh well i think i think these are skills for the for, for everyone so i think that um one of the most useful, there's, there's you know, a, a chap in, um, uh, who's prominent in the, in the team space called Scott Tannenbaum. And uh, Scott is an advocate of debriefing uh, as, as a difference for teams. 
And I think that teens who stop and reflect on how they've behaved, how the conversation went, how you've acted, how I've acted, um, th- this is a transformative practice. Uh, and, and, and if you treat it professionally, and by professionally I mean as if you, know, you were the equivalent of the All Blacks or a SEAL team, that you, you are very serious about, about um, reflecting carefully on how the team has acted and behaved, um, then, then these values will sh- begin to show up in how the team operates. So I think, you know, I mean, none of this stuff is rocket science. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know, it's being prepared to be disciplined and very professional about it. It's interesting how much we've known this and how much we've talked about all of these and how many people say this in terms of their own leadership, but how badly we get it wrong. I'm going to give you an example. I'm coaching someone who will say, I have the wrong team, right? Now, maybe we could argue that there's not the right level of competence, but there is a bit of you got the people you got. And if you see your job as the leader of that team to critique as opposed to what you said, which is show benevolence and to make sure you're doing everything you can to help each of those individuals be the best they can be. It's a really dramatic shift in how you interact with the team. And I would argue changes the dynamics on the team for everybody. Well, I, so look, obviously we agree. Um, and I think you've just pointed out the value of, of employing people like you and I. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it's very hard for a leader to to understand that they, for example, you know, just it was a great little reflection, you know, you are taking, you're critiquing, um, is that the right place to be instead of thinking about what can I do to help these people be better? So if I critique, I'm not part of that. I'm standing back and I'm judging, but I'm not really involved and it's a very easy place to be and completely understandable. But, but, but people, can't divorce themselves sometimes from their own behaviour because they're in it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we are seeing more and more the rise of individual coaching, but also team coaching, yeah. for the reason yeah. that just as sports teams have team coaches, it makes perfect sense uh, to to apply the same the same kind of uh, thinking in the corporate world, yeah. and yeah. and. Uh, I, for one, think they should do it a whole lot more and pay us more for it. (laughs) That would mean they valued it in the first place. That would make a big deal difference. (laughs) You know, um, this is the second. So last week I did a show on sleeping, and I learned that great sports teams have coaches who help the team members sleep. Uh So here we are again. Great sports teams have people who help them actually focus on how do we team better, and it shows up in the results. So there you go. we got more of that one to do. Um, I want to shift shift the gears just one little tiny bit and talk about um, Google again, but in a different way. So Google went back over two years of Google Teams and tried to analyze what made for a really great team. And they come up with five factors. One is psychological safety, which we've already talked about. They frame that as we can take risks on the team without feeling insecure and embarrassed. I think that's trust and vulnerability in my language. And then dependability. We can count on each other to do high-quality work on time. That's a reliability that you just talked about. And then they say the third factor is structure and clarity. 
The fourth factor is meaning of work, and the fifth factor is impact of work. So we've talked about structure and clarity as in form following function. What do you see about the last two there? Meaning of work and uh, impact. Meaning of and impact? Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. Uh, so I think, I, I mean, I think it goes, you know, straight through to human motivation. I think that, um, well, let me, let me tell you, uh, I think meaning can come from many places. And so uh, when I was uh, a student here in New Zealand, I worked in a, in a, a factory that produced milk powder. And I was on the, the dog shift, you know, from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and so we'd rock in to work. And one of the things that happened right from day one is I was getting changed into uh, into the, my overalls and putting gumboots on because it's a very hot, humid environment, uh, was the, the, the team leader shook my hand uh, and introduced me to everyone else. And I shook hands with everyone. I said, okay, you know, good, that's fine. Every single shift, we did the same thing. So he, he looked me in the eye, he shook my hand, and then I shook the hands of everyone else as we, as we joined. Uh, and at the break, which was, which was hard for a young man, you know, working through the night, you get very sleepy, and, you know, they taught me to play cards. And um, by the end of the, um, the 12 weeks that, that I worked there, I had formed an incredible bond with these guys. The work, frankly, was just awful. It was just horrible. You know, we were... We were stacking pallets of, uh, of milk powder by hand back then. Uh, so it's hard physical labor. It's dull as, dull as anything. Um, and you're sleepy and it's a really hot environment. But the, the meaning came from the connection that I formed with people. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I think that I learned that, one, the act of work can be noble and it can be enhanced, even if it's, it's kind of dull, shitty work, it can be enhanced enormously by the caliber of leadership and by the connections that you form with people that, are, that were respectful and, and caring and, and kind of interested in me. Uh, so, so I think meaning can come from, you know, we're finding a cure for malaria or we, uh, you know, we're going to save the world with a new app. But it can come from relationships with the people that you're with. Um, That's a powerful story. What was the last point from Google? It's all it's all covered. It's the same thing, meaning and impact. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the the fabulous story about just the simple act of shaking hands with the leader and with everyone on the team every day, and then at break, kind of caring for you, You're people caring for each other. We're back to that notion of benevolence. The, Dave, we're out of time, sadly. Fabulous conversation. Um, with me today is Dave Winsborough. Dave is founder of Winsborough Limited, and as you can tell, has done a lot of work in New Zealand with a variety of companies from um, governments to defense forces to large global teams as well. Dave, I think the thing that comes out of this one that really strikes me in this particular episode has to do with the notion of the three things that a leader needs to do to create the softer environment that really succeeds. Number one is benevolence. 
that showing people that you really genuinely are interested and care about them and that you're trying to make everybody on the team be the best that they can be. Number two is the competence. We have the capability and skills and we're all willing to talk about it. And number three is the integrity. And then I'm going to add a fourth, which you didn't say, which is this whole sense of communication and coordination and showing compassion and care and connection with each other. So Dave, thank you. Fabulous show. Thanks, Wanda. Great to be here. Okay. It was a pleasure. Really, really, truly a pleasure. I don't think we can talk about this stuff enough. Again, Dave Winsborough and a wonderful book if you'd like to read it, Fusion, The Psychology of Teams. Please join us next week for another episode on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.